Hello and welcome to the Serious Wonder Podcast. Each week, we bring you futuristic ideas and interviews with the intent to inspire awe and wonder. Serious Wonder. This week, Matt Lee, Kevin, and Kyle Russell talk to British utilitarian philosopher David Pierce. He believes and promotes the idea that there exists a strong ethical imperative for humans to work towards the abolition of suffering in all sentient life. His book-length Internet Manifesto, The Hedonistic Imperative, outlines how technologies such as genetic engineering, nanotech, pharmacology, and neurosurgery could potentially converge to eliminate all forms of unpleasant experience among human and non-human animals, replacing suffering with gradients of well-being, a project he refers to as paradise engineering. Let's get into the interview now. Do you consider yourself a psychonaut? Ah... It's uh, well, certainly being a psychonaut sounds uh, rather better than someone who has uh, experimented with lots of uh, drugs. But yes, if we're to understand the nature of of consciousness, I think it will be necessary to pursue the experimental method. We're for the most part still in the pre-Galilean age when it comes to the science of consciousness, um, and I think we're only going to be really able to understand it if we systematically uh, experiment, explore its varieties, test its extremes. Well, that's excellent. Um, so your wiki so is I've correct. only really ventured into the paddling pool then, shall we say. Can you give us an overall definition of um, not just hedonism, you know, but the, uh, the, the hedonistic imperative that you've coined and you wrote the, the, the manifesto about? Yeah, so in some sense, I, I sacrifice my moral seriousness of purpose for the sake of a snappy title. Yes, so the hedonistic imperative, um, hedonism conjures up something rather shallow, one-dimensional and amoral in the term of pleasure. But I think we have uh, an overriding ethical obligation uh, to phase out all forms of suffering, not just in uh, humans, but in non-humans too. Now, this sounds rather kind of fanciful and utopian, but uh, thanks to biotechnology, uh, it looks as though it probably will be feasible. Um, And uh, yes, uh, in the hedonistic imperative and elsewhere, I outline, at least with with some detail at least, how it's actually feasible to get rid of of all forms of suffering. so, yes, in, in, in a nutshell, I mean, what comes when we have finally phased out with suffering, should we, uh, th- 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 should we be happy, should we satisfi- be satisfied with mediocre states of consciousness, or should we go on to, uh, to aim for life animated by gradients of bliss? So, uh, so this is... I don't think gradients of bliss are morally urgent in the same way as phasing out suffering is. I think they are technically feasible to engineer. So this um, is a, a call to actually take responsibility of your conscious state, to not, to not just be victim of, of your chemical predispositions. This is to use technology, genetics, you know, all of these different sciences that are enabling us to modulate uh, different altered states of, of experience and emotional, you know, chemically driven uh, conscious states of awareness, correct? 
Yes, that's that's right. I mean, essentially, nature, natural selection did not design us to be happy uh, in the on the African savanna. Uh, ancestors who were discontented, jealous, anxious, all the kind of the full range of nasty Darwinian emotions. Those were the ones who actually left more copies of their genes. Um, but thanks to the revolution in molecular biology, unraveling the human, human genome, essentially we're uh, poised to be able to edit our own genetic source code. Uh, not least we're going to be able to choose the genetic makeup of our, of our future children. And uh, imagine right now you're, you're deciding that you want to have a child. You could uh, use the traditional process of genetic roulette, the kind of the, the, the genetic crapshoot of sexual <laughs> reproduction, or you could use pre-implantation genetic diagnosis to choose everything from the pain threshold to the hedonic set point of your future child. Um, I think uh, just it's perhaps worth dwelling here on what I mean by uh, hedonic set point. Um, I mean, think perhaps of a, of, 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 of a thermostat. Um, some people are quite lucky. Normally, they're temperamentally pretty happy. Other people, they're, unfortunately, their hedonic set point is rather low. But in the course of a lifetime, it seems most of us tend to fluctuate around whatever uh, a genetically constrained set point uh, is I said it's not entirely due to uh, genetics by any means. It's a combination of environmental circumstances and uh, genetic loading. Um, but as we know from, uh, amongst other things, uh, twin studies, uh, hedonic set point has a lot has it's quite a high genetic loading. And so, to be concrete, imagine you could choose uh, on a scale, let's say, of minus 10 to plus 10, what was going to be the hedonic set point of your of your future child. Now, you might not want to have a super happy child, but other things being equal, you would want to have a child who was genetically predisposed uh, to get the most out of life, to have the most rewarding uh, experiences, to fluctuate a bit around a very high level, uh, a high level of hedonic well-being. Um, and yes, as I said, there are actually, actually we, we've identified particular uh, genes, variant alleles associated with a, a high hedonic set point, temperamentally, uh, uh, temperamental happiness. And it would be possible to do the same with uh, empathy, compassion, sociability, looking further into the future, a far, a, a far greater degree of uh, control than would crudely be possible now. Um, so this is also as I called. Said, it's, it's, as I said, this is, we're looking ahead to some extent, uh, late, uh, uh, several decades away to have the kind of fine grained control uh, over uh, some of the personality variables. But already right now, the, the COMPS gene, for instance, two uh, variants one is associated with a high hedonic set point, others with a, a low hedonic set point. Which would you choose for your, sure. your future? Now, child? how flexible is that in a. Now, first, uh, just real quick for, for the listeners, um, this has also been referred to, as I understand it, as the hedonic treadmill or hedonic adaptation. So regardless as if you win the lottery or become a quadriplegic, after about six months, we fall to a baseline or this hedonic set point. Is that is that? Yeah, it's it's very, very counterintuitive. But yes, six months or so if after becoming quadriplegic in an accident or winning the, the, the lottery, the chances are you'll have reverted to approximately the level 
of well-being or ill-being you had before the win or the tragedy. Sure. Um, the complications, I mean, chronic uncontrolled stress can lower your, head, your, your set point, but it seems that each of us pretty much has this typical hedonic set point around which we fluctuate in the course of a lifetime. How uh, flexible is that? that? Though I'm, like you, I'm sure, in favor of all kinds of uh, social uh, interventions to make the world a, a better, kinder, fairer, nicer place, unless we actually tackle the root biological and genetic causes of, of human well-being, then in practice, 100 years' time, we're probably not going to be better off psychologically than we are now in the same way that there's very little evidence that we're psychologically better off now than our ancestors on the African savanna. Sure. But isn't that, I mean, it kind of provides an opportunity to have an understanding that there is this, this hedonic adaptation, you know, this baseline. And is it in, in, in an epigenet, epigenetic sense, is there a way or is there flexibility to your own set point? Can you structure your thinking or structure how you input the world, you know, and then when you work at your output, you know, your behaviors, when you modulate that, it seems to increase the, the, the rate in which you adapt to your, to your environment. And um, is, is that hedonic set point flexible is what I'm getting at. Um, there is a degree of flexibility, but both your hedonic uh, ceiling and your hedonic floor and also your average hedonic set point seems to be pretty tightly constrained genetically. As I said, it's not as though uh, environmental contingencies don't have some effects. Chronic uncontrollable stress can lead to uh, depression, learned helplessness, behavioral despair, but Unfortunately, there are people who do absolutely everything right, diet, aerobic exercise, sleep discipline, uh, try and structure their lives intelligently, and unfortunately, they're still uh, angst-driven, depressive, miserable, jealous uh, a lot of the time. Um, and yes, uh, but rather than uh, just accept this uh, as uh, yes, a, a fact of life, a fact of nature, I think we ought to be uh, exploring interventions that, that allow everyone to have uh, a naturally rich quality of life. Well, we, I mean, we developed weights. And so in a biological sense, if I wanted to, you know, strengthen muscles, we have weights that allow but me to do that. Isn't that the thing, though? You have to want to do it. Well, well, and the majority of society isn't going to use the weights. Well, right? here's and this is where I think that his hedonistic imperative comes in, that that we have an opportunity to develop neurological weights right. to work out, say, our empathy center to to, you know, become more empathetic as a society. Right, but as the individual, you have to take that first step to want to achieve that level of being. Otherwise, you'll just be another, you know wash mass well and that, that that brings up the question how many people in culture right now believe that the you know that, that we're a depressed nation or, or a depressed state you know filled with depression anxiety stressors well, and you can kind of use the herd immunity model if you can enlighten enough people it'll have that effect because then eventually everyone will will awaken if you want to use that terminology is there a trend david is there a trend with with how we've um, used technology as a safety net to change our environment is that showing a trend in the steven pinker type of 
uh, perspective that there's there's never been this you know less amount of violence you know the hands of dying at the hands of another man are lower than they've ever been does this show that technology changing our environment is is you know kind of moving us towards a higher hedonic set point yes it's an inspiring book in many ways uh 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 uh, stephen pinkley you know the better the better angels of our nature but what's Mm -hmm. striking is in view of the objective indices of how much uh, better our environment is compared to that of our ancestors, one might imagine that, therefore, uh, the incidence of depression, anxiety disorders, marital uh, breakup, and so on, uh, is much reduced compared to, let's say, medieval times. Unfortunately, this doesn't appear to be the case. Uh, If one looks at suicide rates, uh, uh, perhaps almost a million people a year around the world take their own lives. Uh, Hundreds of millions are either clinically or subclinically depressed. Um, Once again, there's a danger here that I'm sounding like a a, a biological determinist and I'm arguing for a very facile uh, and simplistic biological determinism. I'm not. I think we should... But what I want to stress is that we need to combine the the social uh, reform, the social intervention, greater social justice, with attention to the biological root causes uh, of our distress. Now, if you look at each of our core emotions in the ancestral environment, they played a particular particular role, and we need to decide first whether we want to preserve uh, that functional role they play, and second, if we do want to preserve the role, whether we want to uh, preserve the traditional raw fields. Now, if that sounds a bit uh, obscure, is, is an example. Um, take take pain, for instance. It might seem uh, absolutely inevitable that we need to preserve uh, the nastiness of pain because it helps us uh, avoid, respond to noxious stimuli. But we know that silicon robots, for example, can be programmed to avoid noxious stimuli and yet they don't experience raw feels, i.e. no susception. The function of avoiding uh, noxious uh, stimuli is, is separable from the nasty raw feels of agony. And so um, for each of our core emotions, we've got to decide, do we want to retain that, the functional role it plays? And if we do want to function, uh, retain the functional role, do we want to preserve the raw feels as they are now? Um, in the so, case of something like jealousy, for example, one can see why jealousy is, at least in the ancestral environment, was adaptive, fitness enhancing, it helped our genes leave more copies of themselves, um, and yet uh, perhaps, well, I would certainly argue, we, <laughs> why should we seek to preserve a genetic predisposition to jealousy at all? Um, in the case of something agree. like uh, anxiety or the pain response, clearly for the foreseeable future, we will want to retain the functional role. But that's different from saying we, we need to uh, preserve the raw fields. And the point of, of laying such stress on recalibrating the hedonic treadmill so that uh, our lives are animated by information-sensitive gradients of well-being is that your life could, all your life could be wonderful, but nonetheless, because there are these dips in hedonic uh, well-being, these information signaling dips, then you can respond intelligently and adaptively and preserve critical insight. Um, now you talked about. You know, you, sorry, you, yeah. Mm-hmm. You talked about well, a couple of things. I, I first, how I heard that 
and and you know I'll, I'll try to articulate how I heard what you said and that was using the pain example I don't necessarily need to feel the excruciating agony when I stub my toe I can just receive an error message that hey watch where you're walking because there's nothing more annoying or excruciating pain wise than when you stub your pinky toe. And so (laughs) you're saying that there's a way of moving the pain threshold to the point of just me receiving an error, like, Hey, watch your surroundings instead of crippled in the fetal position, holding my toe. But almost, isn't that pain almost necessary to make you understand? So he said that he said that programming a robot to navigate its surrounding does not need to experience the or the right it doesn't it has a message that pain. says listen yes. you're going the wrong way this is a bad thing so well, yeah. stop. let's just take it from from a current diagnosis that i have right now i have a chronic pain disorder and right now they have it's it's a pretty invasive procedure but they can put in a nerve stimulator that blocks the pain receptor the pain signals from coming where the injury is taking place they can put that in now. Which is so really not blocking. fixing the problem. It's just masking the pain at that point, though, right? Absolutely. And That's, isn't the pain letting you know that there is an underlying problem? Absolutely. And so that's when you are diagnosed. Pain, you just get a message that says, look, well, this is wrong. Well, that's what we do right fix now with, with prescription pills. When, you're, when you right, have a right. chronic pain disorder, you can, especially with nerve damage, currently right now there's no way to repair nerves. That, I, that, that the doctors have told me, at least, and that I've sure. done my own little bit of research. But... They can put these types of implants and uh, to it's what you do with um, pain management. Right. Yeah, yeah. At that point, it's pain management. So if I can sign up on a genetic, level, you're doing. Hey, uh, you know, can can we change a genetic sequence here to there, and then I don't have to feel my my nerve pain anymore. Well, I think that's, that's yeah, there's, that there's, there's, the, there's a deep philosophical question of why do we have any experience at all? Why can't we be like? Uh, sil- uh, 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 silicon robots, for instance, but we don't need to solve uh, the mystery of, of, of consciousness. Certainly not here, here tonight. What we can do, for example, here's here's a concrete instance. The, uh, the pain is modulated by a number of genes, but uh, consider the SCN9A gene. Uh, nonsense mutations completely abolish any capacity to feel. Uh, physical pain and that leads to all sorts of problems on the rare cases of people who have nonsense mutations of the SCN9A gene but other variants of the SCN9A gene confer unusually high or low pain sensitivity and in the short term at least I think when we're choosing the genetic makeup of our children yes we could go for the genetic crapshoot approach or we could choose benign variants of SCN9A so that our children have high pain thresholds so that, yes, they, the signaling function is retained, but they're not undergoing the, uh, the raw viciousness of, of agony as experienced today. And I think there's a, there's a danger, perhaps, that people um, who don't suffer in, in, in intense pain or have a chronic pain disorder just... Yes, yeah, so it's easy to forget just how awful uh, uh, pain can be if one isn't in that state. Um, and that's... Uh, 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 an illustration of what's going to be feasible in the future. Now, no. you might say, well, that's not completely abolishing uh, uh, pain. Yes, you've abolished uh, uh, severe suffering, but there's still pain. Well, in the long run, there are perhaps two options. One is to have a different uh, architecture in which we're animated entirely by gradients of well-being. Now, that might sound extremely implausible, 
Um, but consider, at the risk of being indelicate, two people uh, 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 making love. I mean, sensitive lovers are uh, response. Some aspects of love making uh, are even more enjoyable than others, and sensitive lovers can respond uh, appropriately to stimuli. But if that's if that's uh, too fanciful, there's uh, another. There is a high tech uh, route to go, which is to offload the function of of nociception onto smart prostheses, so that let's say your hand is about to hot to uh, touch the hot stove and uh, this, the little uh, uh, invisibly implanted device uh, withdraws your hand to prevent damage, presumably with some kind of, of manual override. Um, now, oh, those two uh, options for the, the, the further future uh, aren't mutually exclusive. We might uh, uh, combine them. Um, but as I said, I would say in the near-term future, uh, what we want to do is make sure that our children have uh, benign genes and high pain thresholds. Now, this, this, I mean, I loved your example there. Something we talk a lot about is, you know, the virtual world that we're, that we're about to be fully immersed in with new technologies like the Oculus Rift or optogenetics. You know, these type of things are going to allow our conscious state to exist externally in a virtually medi mediated type of environment that's going to be um you use the word uh engineering or, or paradise engineering or um naturalization of heaven now in a virtual environment are our limbic projections that you talked about uh, you know you said that heaven and hell are projected from the limbic up to the neocortex now when we're immersed in a full virtual reality that has graphics and, and an environment that are indistinguishable from reality itself. How are these type of projections going to interact? And is it going to allow us the opportunity to overcome some of those type of uh, phenomena like, like jealousy? I know in my own life that I can, I can use, I can use philosophy and I can use type of thought experiments to walk myself away from the emotion of jealousy and then turn it into a type of empathy in a virtual environment, is that going to be amplified, that ability to reason over your reflex? That's an interesting example because I suspect that you are quite atypical in that strength of, uh, of will here because other things being equal in the ancestral environment uh, would be ancestor who decided he wasn't going to waste his life being corroded by jealousy uh, when when his uh, friend decided to sleep with his wife, uh, he wasn't the one who passed on his genes. Uh, for many people, unfortunately, uh, anxiety is is uncontrollable. Um, the issue of uh, virtual worlds, um, well, a lot of issues there. Yes, I think increasingly we probably will uh, live in immersive VR, VR, and some people imagine that perhaps we will... Uh, yes, live in designer paradises, and perhaps a lot of the time uh, this is true, though presumably there will be selection pressure against people who spend all their time uh, in immers immersive VR. But, and here's what I think is the critical point, unless we actually uh, enhance our reward pathways and recalibrate the hedonic treadmill, uh, we won't probably be, on average, subjectively better off, even if we live... Uh, in 
immersive designer paradises. It's back to the hedonic treadmill again. I mean, imagine if all your dreams came true, whatever they are, and you lived in uh, you know, an immersive paradise, everything seemed hyper-realistic, uh, you kind of master of the universe, all, all your kind of wish-fulfillment fantasies. Chances are, six months after entering this state, your, your, your well-being would have reverted to what it is now, unless that is your, your, your uh, reward pathways are enhanced. Um, is there a spot where that tops out, or can you just infinitely enhance? Like, is, is there a physical limit to the amount of... Neurological, dendritic Yeah, like, where is limit? that peak at? In the case, uh, it seems that we have two uh, ultimate hedonic hotspots in the uh, medial rostral shell of the nucleus uh, accumbens and the ventral pallidum. Oh, yeah. Uh, that. Kind of new <laughs> opioid uh, receptors, full activation by new agonists of uh, receptors in our hedonic hotspots will maximize center. the well-being which we're currently capable of but in principle there's no reason why one can't uh, enrich and enhance uh, inde- uh, indefinitely do you find um, that perhaps th- i should stress stress again though that um <laughs> if we want to retain critical insight and social responsibility uh, and compassion and the uh, ability to intellectually progress it's vital to retain gradients of, of, of well-being, uh, information-sensitive gradients. So it's not purely a matter of case of, of maxing out on pleasure. Right. Uh, now, when one says this intuitively, people, people will respond, well, won't the dips represent uh, suffering? Isn't, isn't, the, isn't, isn't the contrast involved likely to mean that the dips are the new suffering? Um, but however intuitively compelling this objection is, it doesn't actually seem to hold water. Um, and to understand why, consider uh, just how today that sadly there are some people who are chronically depressed and in pain. Now, some of their days may be perhaps less dreadful than others, but nonetheless it would be cruel to suggest that they weren't chronically unhappy and suffering. And likewise, with the people today, the very uh, exceptional hypothymic people with extremely high hedonic set points, um, uh, yeah, they can have bad hair days too, but their bad hair days may be uh, far better than the, uh, uh, the best days of a depressive. It's all relative, it sounds like. Do, well, you, do, you, do you find that those centers can get burned out? I see in, in point four here in the, the uh, write-up you did, Life in Dopaminergic Overdrive, you talk about uh, like opiated sensibility of the heroin addict, and you see this in opiate-dependent people that those centers eventually get burned out, and as you, you uh, accumulate this dependence to the opiates that are in the mu receptors, is this because you're not overloading strictly just the mu receptors? Is that why you can take this further instead of just ending up with basically a, an addict burnout of sorts? Essentially, yes. If one wants to engineer this hedonic recalibration, one has to sabotage the existing negative feedback mechanisms of the brain that stop people from being, from the perspective of evolution, too happy, too contented, or for that matter, too uh, too depressed uh, 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 for, for for very long. But this is why uh, the more, uh, let's say, common ways today of artificially making oneself uh, cheerful aren't uh, effective uh, recreational drugs, which, as, as we know, tend to induce uh, euphoria followed by a crash. 
So though it may be possible in future to imagine designer drugs that do sabotage the negative feedback mechanisms of the brain, um, they don't exist yet. Uh, uh, and uh, yes, uh, I would. Uh, uh, yes, I'd be loath that I would be very reluctant if anyone uh, thought I was uh, uh, urging uh, people to go out and take heroin or, or cocaine or anything like that. That is not the solution to the problem of suffering. No, but you are talking in the future if some chemist is able to isolate the exact neurotransmitter that you know, you know, retards the certain, you know, this, this negative reward mechanism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But just the, the actual synthetic version of our natural dopamine drive and those type of things that, that isn't toxic and it, you know, it doesn't dissolve different dendritic highways and such. This is a perfect isolate that will perpetuate this new hedonic um, uh, set point. Well, that goes back to the, to the it's all relative thing. And like you would design each one individually for that person's certain brain chemicals and chemistry and all, and all that. Originally, sequencing the human genome cost an absolutely ridiculous uh, billion dollars or what have you. The price has now come to have your genome sequenced perhaps uh, $5,000 or, or, or less. It's going to come down to uh, $100. Essentially, everyone who, who wants to will be able to have a copy of their of their genome. Prospective parents will be uh, able to choose uh, uh, within uh, certain discretion the genetic makeup of their of their future children. And yes, uh, treatments will be uh, tailored to the individual. Uh, if biochemical individuality were totally unrestricted, then it wouldn't be possible to uh, to do uh, ser- uh, serious science, which depends on the principle of the uniformity of nature. And there, certainly there are some very uh, strong, conserved sequences and commonalities in all our brains. But uh, yes, there is also a substantial amount of allelic variation. And in future, uh, gene therapies and drug uh, treatments can be tailored to the individual genotype. Uh, this is the, the big divide here, if, if, and it's a big if, that you do think we should be able to phase out involuntary suffering, is whether we should go down the pharmacological or the genetic route. Uh, the pharmacological has the advantage of being fine-grained and readily reversible, uh, but it's worth asking, do we really want to drug our children from birth? Wouldn't it be better if uh, children were born with invincible psychological and physical good health so other things being equal i think we should aim for a, a default of, uh, of, of of invincible mental health well won't won't the combination of the two change it in the epigenetic sense and i know that we you know no science has a full grasp of of the implications of the epigenome and such yet but if we're if we're using chemicals plus gene therapy and such wouldn't they combined to amplify this process indefinitely you know wouldn't it become a perpetual type of um uh, upgrade well and so don't forget speak? virtual reality too you can put someone That's in that state yeah, just as well talking. Right. and so with all of this in practice, you know, there's going to be yes there's going to be a process of recursive self-improvement uh including genes that um, modulate uh, uh intellectual performance and it's likely yes that a healthier smarter happier uh, 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 children and grandchildren will be modifying their own uh, 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 source code in this uh, escalating cycle of, of self-improvement in, in ways we can't anticipate. 
Um, what what do you an- sorry? Huh? What what do you anticipate? You know, say in the next ten years, and I know it's never fun to you know give any any prophecies or what spoiler alert but but, you know like you're you're immersed in this and you've spent a lot of time you know thinking and laying out this this manifesto and you know thinking down the implications of the future where do you think that as society we're going to take this opportunity and what i feel is a responsibility to you know heed the hedonistic imperative so to speak well, some cliches are worth repeating. Well, I'm going to re- repeat it now. It's, it's been well said that we uh, that we overestimate the effects of change in the short run and underestimate it in the in the long run. In the case of the next ten years, yes, I'm sure there will be uh, breakthroughs, genetic breakthroughs, new drugs, new therapies. Um, but uh, I would be quite cautious in suggesting that there is going to be a a, a mass uh, transition in the next 10 years um but increasingly as uh, within let's say the next 20 to 25 years as virtually everyone who wants to has their own genome sequenced as more and more prospective parents will be choosing the genetic makeup of their future children i think even people who say that they're against the idea of eugenics, for instance, will want to make sure that their future offspring don't have the cystic fibrosis allele, uh, 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 or the sickle cell allele, or something like that, recognize genetic diseases as the genetic basis of, uh, of depression, anxiety disorders is, is better understood. Uh, I think more and more prospective parents will choose benign alleles and allelic combinations. Um, but timescales, uh, I, I simply uh, I don't know. I think it's, it's likely that much more kind of sophisticated, user-friendly software will be available. And gene therapy is in its, uh, in, is in its, is in its infancy. But the nature of exponential growth is that it starts slowly and then uh, uh, rapidly increases. Um, and if you look at uh, non-biological robots and the extent to which uh, we can uh, improve them and eventually they'll be able to recursively self-improve, uh, the same is true uh, of organic robots too. And I say organic robots not because I in any way wish to uh, demean or dehumanize us just to uh, highlight the extent to which we are uh, uh, we are ultimately biochemical uh, uh, mechanisms uh, and all our, uh, our happiness all our suffering all our joys will have uh, a basis in our in our biochemistry and it's, it's no longer simply a, a fact of nature that you have to uh, uh, to, to suffer well, not just you but you and your loved ones I think that's beautiful. Now, I took some notes, and during one of your lectures, you had touched upon something that, if you could elaborate on, you you had used the word mirror touch synesthetes. And how I interpreted that is, you know, the empathetic mirror neural network and, you know, the blending of that, that ability for us to dissolve the borders between, I believe one of the neuroscientists called them the Gandhi neurons. It dissolves the barrier between people they don't know. So if I see you inflicted in pain, I feel that internally. Is that what you're meaning by mirror touch synesthetes? Um, yeah, um, mirror touch synesthesia, yes. Uh, a mirror touch synesthesia, you cut catch your hand and feels uh, a pain as though it were his or her 
I mean, this is, uh, uh, well, we say it's uh, abnormal form, uh, a syndrome of, of unusual empathy, but perhaps it's the rest of us who are uh, quasi-sociopathic uh, and I, indifference to well, the, you, uh, the sufferings of others. That's something um, that I experience. I mean, I can, I can recall all times in my life when I've seen even my brother sitting here cut his thumb. I can still feel it as if the memory was my own or my dad. Having a vase cut his hand open, I can feel that. When I'm on YouTube and I watch one of the skateboard failures, you know, where they hit their head, it it, it has a visceral emotional reaction within me. I, I thought that that was normal. I I can't watch certain type of things because of the experience, you know, the, the, the real raw visceral reaction that I have in me. But I thought that was a natural human phenomenon. I hadn't um, classified it as what you're saying you know, this mirror touch synesthesia or synesthesia. Yeah, I think it's it's good you, you raise this issue because I suspect a lot of people listening think uh, kind of hedonistic pleasure isn't this very self isn't this very uh, selfish and uh, self indulgent? Isn't it going to make us uh, cold, uh, callous, and unempathetic towards the sufferings of others? And though there certainly are forms of well-being that are very egotistical. Uh, equally, it's possible to take control of one's emotional makeup and uh, set benign conditions for the emotional makeup of one's future children so that we are more uh, empathetic and compassionate too. Um, so, yes, uh, I would very, very much stress that this isn't just a matter of simply amping up the volume of, 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 of pleasure. I think this is, yes, uh, amping up the volume, crudely speaking, uh, uh, is, 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 is important. But there's, there's far more to, uh, uh, to building a, a better society than simply uh, increasing raw bliss. What, what, what do you think, you know, for society at, at large, if you could give you know, recommendations of certain philosophers, books, um, you know, psych, you know, all of these different, you know, we have access to all of human knowledge through the internet. Where should people spend their time if they want to take the, you know, opportunity and what I push as a responsibility to modulate one's emotional state? You know, where, where do people get a firm foundation for understanding that this is, this is an opportunity and possibility? Well, the first thing I think one can uh, uh, do isn't isn't especially high tech at all. Uh, in that, what is the greatest source of severe, chronic, and readily avoidable suffering in the world today? Uh, it is uh, factory farming and uh, uh, slaughterhouses. And if one is really serious, uh, ethically speaking, regardless of whether one is a a utilitarian or a Kantian or a pluralist or a religious uh, uh, believer, if one treats uh, 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 suffering uh, 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 seriously ethically, I think the thing to do is to quit eating uh, meat and animal products. Uh, so that is, yeah, that is, uh, uh, I would say, that the number one thing one can uh, do to alleviate suffering in the world right now it may not have been the so, <laughs> the so that we're, we're, we're expecting um, know, in terms of one's uh, own uh, uh, well-being uh, I think there's a very good case 
for mugging up uh, on some uh, some neuro some neuroscience, some psychopharmacology, uh, the uh, the uh, uh, the brain. Um, once again, a lot of it at first, if, if if one isn't well versed in the neurosciences, can read like a lot of of, of neurobabble. Um, but understanding the basis of uh, of, of mood and emotion is perhaps the first step in understanding how one can actually uh, control it. Sure. Um, now, that is, I don't want to give the impression that uh, these questions are already well understood. They're not. Uh, and when it comes to the more cognitively advanced forms of consciousness, they are much less uh, uh, amenable to fine-grained control than the emotions. Um, now, what do you now, to back to the um, the meat thing? And so, how I understand that, if we're if we're going to eliminate such suffering, we can't perpetuate suffering in a sentient, uh, you know, animal. And that brings the question that you're always going to have the people that you know we're meat and we eat meat, and that's how it's always been. Now we have a new technology with in vitro meat, and you know that first hamburger was just served up and whatnot. And when we refine that, when where's the the moral ethical implications in your mind when it comes to in vitro or, or you know, growing meat in a petri dish? Yes, I think some uh, uh, vegetarians and animal rights activists are extremely queasy about uh, in vitro meat. Um, and as I said, I think there is a very compelling uh, ethical argument for quitting meat and animal products right now. But we, we need to be realistic that many people are extremely... Uh, morally apathetic, uh, uh, sadly, uh, and that by accelerating uh, the development and commercialization of in vitro meat, uh, one in practice, this in practice is likely to lead to a, 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 a vegan stroke in vitro, uh, in vitrotarian dietary revolution uh, later this century. I suspect it's going to be a case of two to three decades rather than one to two decades. I, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, now, this might sound quite a, an implausible and uh, and bold prediction. Uh, surely most people are still going to want to uh, eat natural, inverted commas, meat. But if you, comp if you look at the conditions of factory farm non-human animals, uh, yeah, that's what, what totally they're natural. pumped with and how unnatural <laughs> it all is, uh, I, I don't think this uh, argument is, is compelling at all. I think the yuck factor, if anything, will work the other way. Yeah. Uh, and so hopefully uh, in vitro meat products of a, of a taste and texture indistinguishable from that of, uh, of, of beef or pork today uh, will be hitting the shelves. I would suspect it's going to be uh, sometime uh, in, in, in the next decade, in the one to two decades. Um, but I, I don't know the precise scale, but the, the sooner the better. Now, in your own life, have you been able to, you know, bringing it back to another compelling emotion you drawed upon, which was jealousy? Is that something that, you know, we have the you know, above the genetic level? You know, are are we able to you know, philosophize or think our way out of that emotion that, you know, that terrible thing, that that emotional state of jealousy? You know, it's such a horribly i don't know the chemical but is that in the genetic level or is it something that societal cultural you know is that something left over from our chimpanzee you know this you know pain is something that i can understand but i can't really understand why we have something like jealousy 
in in society. Now, that's what I mean. It's, like it's we we know, for instance, uh, on a uh, on MDMA or, or ecstasy, that the emotion of, of jealousy uh, seems to dissipate. Now, the solution to je- the problem of, of, of jealousy is not for people to go around taking uh, MDMA, which unfortunately is neurotoxic and, in any case, quite sh- short-acting. But it, it provides a, a clue as to, if we understand its molecular mechanisms, how jealousy can be reduced and eventually be abolished if if, if we want to do so. Um, SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake blockers, tend to diminish jealousy. Uh, Unfortunately, they have side effects. They can sometimes uh, act as psychic uh, uh, anesthetizers. Um, But uh, yes, uh, unfortunately, we, we do have a strong genetic predisposition to uh, a jealousy, and though uh, some people may be able to control it to a greater or lesser extent, uh, yeah, one can actually see how fitness enhancing uh, the experience can be. And yeah, the sexual jealousy is 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 one aspect, but but, but jealousy. What did it? What, what did uh, Gore Vidal say? Uh, Every time a, a friend succeeds, uh, part of me dies, or something something like that. <laughs> one has all sorts of. Uh, unlovely feelings and emotions, a legacy from the Darwinian past, uh, and it will be good to uh, assume control of those emotions instead of just being their victim. Yeah. Well, they've even had good luck with different tryptamines. Uh, in when, when you come out of that, you have this deeper empathetic feeling for just everything, and it, it's something in the pineal gland, in the brain, that's just like, here's how you want to feel. And it's just this like overcoming feeling of just like, everything's okay. You know, that jealousy is low. Everything is just, it's not as like in your face as television, media, movies, all that kind of stuff would want you to see in the classic love triangle situation. You know, here's a, in this, this, this might be just, uh, too out there, but do you, have you read or listened to much of Terrence McKenna's theories? Um, I've, it's a little while now, but yes, I have read uh, uh, Terence. Uh, Mc- I think uh, best described as as, as speculative. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, um, but uh, he's fun theories. Yes, uh, speculative. Well, he he just brings an interesting. You know, he talked about, and it's been. I love the the term, the stoned ape theory, and you know the the, the credibility as far as scientifically, I'm sure you know, is on shaky ground. But, you know, the hypothetical that there was a, you know, pre-agriculture society that was more bonobo, bonobo in way Bonobo-ish. because of, you know, the, the, the mushroom intoxication from the psilocybin, right, the embrace right. or activa- activation of different empathy drives. Yeah, you know? it changed and they, they were a very, um, he called it the, uh, you know, it was, it was the metaphorical Eden that was here before, you know, the actual climate change. That was in the time split uh, discussion he had where one one side of us branched off and found religion. And this is where we well, are we now. Lost, and another branch. Well, went what we off did was we mushrooms. lost the, the chemical. Right. And so the right. chemical, it turned, you know, they, they couldn't preserve it. And so they were preserving the the mushroom and honey. And then when it, it fermented, it became mead. And that's a whole different chemical in the right. brain. And then it, and it perpetuates more um, um, male dominance. And, and that hierarchy started to where we started subordinating 
the the feminine impulse and whatnot. Right. And so what what his what I'm trying to extrapolate out of it is there's a chemical grounding for for society's operation. And right now we're very patriarchal. You know, we're very male dominant. I it's mean, just, alcohol. Just look based. at what's it's, happening. Well, it's af- it's alcohol and it's um, and it's you know caffeinated and, and right. you know these Sugared. are stimulants yeah. and such. Yeah. But there is other cultures out there, and I love that there's the country and it's a small one. Uh, the name slips me, but part of their governmental division is the gross national happiness. Oh, Bhutan. Bhutan, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. Brilliant, brilliant. So can you actually elaborate on that? You seem to know, like the gross national happiness uh, department. Yes, uh, a, a traditional way of measuring well-being is gross national product, but uh, uh, Bhutan very sensibly recognizes that ultimately it's uh, – uh, subjective well-being or, or happiness stroke uh, unhappiness that is actually uh, uh, critical. Um, there was a, a, an Ipsos poll report, international poll record, reported in The Economist last year. Um, uh, people were asked uh, to uh, rate their mood, and when it came to the percentage of people reporting themselves as very happy, top came Indonesia, followed by India, followed by Mexico. Now, that's not to say there aren't all manner of terrible problems in all three of those countries, but it, it illustrates the hedonic uh, uh, treadmill uh, at work. And yes, I think uh, gross, national, uh, gross national happiness, uh, embracing both humans and non-humans, it's, it's excellent if it can uh, be measured, improved uh, metrics, advanced neuroscanning. Um, but uh, equally, we actually need uh, interventions that really will be uh, effective. How is um, that Buddhist, not, for instance? Sorry, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just going to say, like, how is that not in in our societies? Why is it just Bhutan? Why is it these small countries that can have something that seems so logical? Like, instead of the next NSA, FBI, CIA department for homeland security and such, why don't we have a gross national happiness department that is actually seeking, you know, that's funded Can to seek the betterment and recreation. It's not profitable right now for <laughs> the government at large at the way the models. Set well, up, that's, right? I really want to know that why there's only one country with a actual department that seeks to find the the most optimal happiness right. for their because citizens. Because clearly that one country is far more enlightened than the rest of the freaking world here. Well, <laughs> you know? do, you, do you, I mean, do you speculate? Like, what what is that, that that is stopping something so logical from being implemented in governments around the world, David? I think a number of countries, at least uh, certain researchers in certain countries have been taking the Bhutanese model seriously. Um, but it's once again, it comes down to just being very, very counterintuitive. If you're offered either a uh, million dollars or the chance to have your hedonic uh, treadmill recalibrated so you're 5% happier or something like that, probably most people would go for the, the, the million dollars. <laughs> um, it is, yeah, it, it, it's deeply rooted in our, in our nature to be attracted to certain uh, uh, stimuli, whereas the not- notion of uh, hedonic recalibration, the hedonic treadmill, uh, is all a bit uh, theoretical. It probably sounds to, to, to some people at least. Wow. Now, what are some of the downsides to this? I, I hate to be the pessimist here, but I have to bring up, you know, when you're in a happy state, sometimes you let things go that shouldn't be let go. Or things get out of perspective, right? Absolutely. It shapes a certain perspective of being happy, but not always rational. So where is that line? Where is that limit for the future? 
I mean, I see yes, if, if we're so we happy, then we wouldn't have a problem with the NSA. What we want to make sure is any intervention doesn't trigger, for instance, uncontrolled uh, mania. Now, mania doesn't need to uh, have the euphoric form. There are dysphoric and dysphoric uh, forms of mania, but there's one form of, of mania, just uh, just uncontrolled uh, 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 well-being, subjective happiness, uh, in which critical insight is lost. There can be megalomania, religious uh, delusions, uh, rampant promiscuity. Uh, that is one example of an intervention that goes wrong. A, a, a drug, for instance, that triggers mania, and some drugs can sometimes trigger mania. So, yes, I think that it's critical to, to stress the importance of, of hedonic recalibration rather than either maximization or any intervention that may, that may trigger mania. Um, well, I, I mean, the, I, de- sorry? Well, the debate there and what came into my head, I like that you gave the parallel there. You know, we know that, you know, in times of stress where your your behavior would be reflective with anger and those type of things, neurologically, you're inept. Neurologically, you're, you know, you're in a state of mind or a place in your brain that limits your cognition to the point where people can't even identify 911 on their phone call because they're so, you know, in a chemically induced emotional state that they're they're neurologically retarded from actually processing the world. And so the counter to you know, the if you're always in a happy state and that's going to limit, you know, your ability to remember certain things. I think neurologically that if you're I think the Dalai Lama was just talking about this, that if you're in a state of compassion, you're at the highest parts of the brain, the, the neocortex, as I understand it. But if you're in a fight or flight or you're stimulated by these limbic emotions, it, it pulls the blood and it pulls up in our more primitive instinctual react, you know, reaction areas of the body, right? Yes, it's good that we're having this debate because if one looks at uh, all kind of previous uh, utopian uh, schemes, things have a habit of going wrong. Uh, And uh, yes, these extraordinarily powerful new technologies are becoming available that effectively allow us to uh, become gods, but we don't understand the full ramifications of, of what we're doing. Uh, bioconservatives would say, uh, well, so simply because these are uh, unknown and experimental, we shouldn't use these technologies at all. But uh, every child who is born is, is a unique genetic experiment. Uh, and so it's a choice of uh, today's genetic uh, crapshoot, or to some extent at least, uh, stacking the, uh, I was going to mix my metaphors here, stacking the deck, uh, the deck in favor of our future children. No, I, it wasn't that, that uh, there was some transhumanist quote that I love that it was intelligent design at last. And <laughs> that, you know, our, our ability to edit the genome as, as Freeman Dyson quoted with the fluency that Blake and Byron wrote sonnets, you know, that's the world that we're moving into. But what kind of, what kind of art are we going to paint on the canvas of life in this new day and age? And I think that that's where, People like you that are, you know, painting the hedonistic imperative to abolish suffering is one of the most beautiful type of new new age art pieces for the world to reflect upon because it, it, it outlines exactly what if we're going to define what it is to be human, 
that's a very ambiguous thing because to be human is different in everybody. But if you isolate your subjective experience of, of what it feels to be happy, what it feels to be more empathetic and you allow other emotions to filter that out or to hinder that, like jealousy, if I'm feeling jealous, I can't feel love. I can't feel that embrace. I can't feel that compassion to another person. If it's being, you know, all that energy is being diverted to perpetuate hatred or anger or jealousy based on anti equated uh primate emotions so i uh, i guess that was a long way of saying i appreciate uh your work <laughs> we're well, what, what, right now it's, it's very kind words but, but i think it's, it's worth stressing to how hedonic recalibration is means that you don't if you don't want to need to ch uh, change your existing values and preference architecture it simply makes it much more likely you and any future children you have will enjoy a much higher quality of, of, of life. It's an emotional um, diet. The other thing to stress, too, is this. We're not talking about coercive well-being uh, here. It's, 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 it's going to be a matter of, of, of choice and, uh, and opportunity today that uh, uh, we essentially don't have any choice over involuntary in suffering, whether one is prone to depression, anxiety disorders, jealousy. It, it, it said it's it, uh, it, it's not something we choose, whereas in future the biology of suffering is increasingly going to be optional. Now, what what kind of stuff are we seeing right now today in the lab? What it, what does that look like? How we're having the discussion about future implications and what could happen t decades into the future, but what are we seeing right now? What what does that look like? In terms of, I think yeah, a lot of people are going to switch off if they if they think this is going to be in the in, in the far future, and it can sound very utopian and grandiose talk of uh, getting rid of suffering. Um, right now, in terms of what you could do today, um, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis doesn't actually involve genetic engineering in the strict sense at all. Uh, in the uh, West, couples who use it uh, do so to make sure that they don't pass on the gene, let's say, the cystic fibrosis. It would be possible to, right now, to insist uh, on its use to make sure you don't have uh, a child with a low, or not make sure, but now, unlikely to have a child with uh, a low hedonic set point or a low uh, a pain threshold. No. Um, looking a bit further into the future, we will have... Uh, true designer genomes in which uh, it's not simply a matter of, uh, of, of of choosing what nature or sexual reproduction throws up, inverted commas, naturally, but actually uh, editing, tweaking, inserting new genes, new variant alleles, uh, max, uh, uh, increasing uh, uh, our capacities to, to, to flourish in ways that we can't can't imagine. But that is probably... Uh, yes, uh, two to three decades away. It's uh, 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 for now, though. If you want, uh, as I said, uh, to, uh, I think the resp a responsible parent before have, uh, having children should consider using using pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. And um, no, just what... just one quick point. Uh, I think a lot of people hearing this will think, well, isn't this going to be the prerogative of the uh, the rich uh, and the elite? Um, and sadly speaking, uh, yes, we live in an unfair, unfair world. But the greatest users of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis today uh, are not people, prospective parents in the rich West, but people in, uh, in China and India who don't want to have uh, girls but boys, which raises ethical questions of its own. Uh, but 
unfortunately, in, in, in the long run, uh, there's a tendency for the cost of any information-based technology to, to trend to zero. Uh, uh, just as, uh, 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 I won't go into a long discussion of piracy here, but essentially anyone in the world now with a, a smartphone can access all the world's uh, uh, music and literature and the like. Uh, likewise, when it comes to uh, genetic information too, uh, the revolution in information technology uh, means that these technologies will be extremely widely uh, accessible. Um, there's always going to be a small lag uh, between you know, their the possession by the rich and the privileged, but in principle, they can be extended, extended across the globe. Now, I think that that's beautiful. And that's, a you know, I think an optimistic way to to bring this hour to an end. It's uh, it is a quite an opportunity to to hear your perspective on that. They're very, very well thought out. And how best can people read more about your work and get in touch with you if they're inclined? Yes, there are a lot of issues we haven't uh, tackled. I expect some of your listeners <laughs> to uh, objections, straight questions, and comments. Um, uh, people are very, very welcome. If they go to abolitionist.com, that's a memorable URL, abolitionist.com, uh, and there should be an email address at the bottom, and together with uh, a selection of uh, links. Uh, and yes, apologies if anyone feels that. Uh, uh, their, uh, well, what they're probably their mental objections haven't been uh, 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 tackled because I'm well aware I have skated over all sorts of of, of, issue, uh, of issues. But well, yes, abolitionist.com. It would be great to get him back on the well, show that's what, definitely again you know, to like revisit. Leave some of these the... comments, and so let's get the conversation going. Let's. That's what we want. We want this to be you know stimulating. We want it to provoke thought. We want you to you know find that there is this opportunity and and again response and and you know put these questions you know we'll, we'll have the show notes up there and uh, we'll have a type of transcript as well plus all the information to to get a hold of david but uh, if we could have you back on in a couple months and then we can address and dive in deeper to to the listeners questions and uh, again i could go on for hours you know with a bunch of different questions and i know oh, i know yeah. we all could all three of us were sitting here <laughs> it's it's a really we painted with a broad stroke today we covered a whole lot of things that we could absolutely take and and go on to each individual issue but i think that we we really summed up a good you know a, a good broad view of what I, this all means. I, I totally agree david it, it really has been a pleasure and uh, if we could have you back in a couple months we would love that i'd be delighted i'd be absolutely delighted oh, thank, perfect, thank you all three of you all right we'll talk to you again soon thank you all right well all right Kyle, <laughs> Kyle, I know you, you're sitting there just holding the mic like, ah, oh, he, he, you don't want to cut him off because he's so brilliant. And it's just, you want to ask these questions, but, but he's so, I mean, elaborate. And he, he, he answered the questions before I could even ask. I know them. every time I, I was going to ask a question, talk. he would, yeah, just, just let, let him, him go. Talk. It's great. It, all the information was great. A lot of it was over my head. You know, we started talking the technical, you know, getting into the H39 genome and I, I don't know what all that means, but 
in in the current what we could listen do now. all we really need to do is focus on the scn9a gene which <laughs> codes for the nav 1.7 sodium ion channels present at endings of pain sensing nociceptors is yes, that all that's all it is is that to, all it is to, to okay no more, i got it now to new, no I more about that's, it in io9 it's totally I, fine i got it I and there are also it. other alleles that confer an unusually high pain sensitivity or low so you yeah. gotta mess with those alleles it's, no, it's his, all genetics bro the, the, it's just the, genetics it's the just man genetics. Just, though the manifesto though he Hedonistic imperative is is very elaborate. I started it. reading through it, and I I want to read like the whole thing. It's it, so it, you have to sit with it. It's you a have to absorb it. You know? Yeah, 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 you exactly. really do. I want but to it, highlight and, and but mark what it and, does is and it, and this is something that that again I keep saying that it's an opportunity but also a responsibility. The fact that we can, you know, jealousy is the greatest one right now. You know, that seems so cultural or societal. And, and he, he did elaborate that it is genetic as well, that the people that did display signs of jealousy had more ability to prom, you know, promulgate their their genetic information down, you know, down right, the line. Right. It's the, and so it's, it is in us. But again, we know that we can rationalize against it and we can use certain philosophy, certain ways of thought to recalibrate how before you behave. So you take an input in and if that provokes that emotional uh, you know, chemical response within you, then you can use, you know, certain type it's of like philosophies a filter. or those it's things. A, the philosoph- philosophical filter that, that can rationalize. Well, it buffers it. And if you yeah. can buffer the time before your reaction or your behavior, and so I input something from the external world that provokes a jealous behavior, a jealous emotion in me, before I, I behave jealously or, or I react in that, in that you know, jealous, uh, jealous way, I can buffer that. With with philosophy or so my what, understanding, it always reminds me of that thing. I forget if it was Lurie or McKenna, but he said about like when when tools when pronouns became a thing, and that this tool suddenly becomes my tool or your tool yeah. or his tool or her yeah. tool. And before that, and then that gave people reason to be jealous about like, oh, that's mine. Give it here, and and we know that that's we're not, not how the brain works, though. Well, if you it's like a resource guarding of sorts. you know it's you parts sure. of the brain do work that way, but if you're going to resonate as that part of your brain and define that bit of your brain as being human I feel that that's where the, the, the conversation can be had or the debate that could be had that I want to define myself as a human through the empathy or my ability to mirror and reflect that you are a person as much as I am a person and the only thing that you know is different is how your genetic makeup made up you but, but what I perceive in you should be unfiltered in what I reflect back to you and if my prejudices or my biases or these type of things are altering how I'm reflecting to you that you're reflecting me your icy blue eye stare right now <laughs> and it's, I'm getting lost in the poetics. You know, Let's just bring it down to natural. I, you want it's uh, bringing up religion. You know, the golden rule is treat others as if you'd want to be treated. Now yeah, we can get yeah. that and answer that question scientifically. Sure. Engineer uh, the human genome to be able to produce a more empathetic person, yeah. a, a child with less pain or a higher pain tolerance. Um, to me, this, this sounds kind of, you know, like Star Trek, but what let's is, look at the Vulcan. Hold on. Hold on. Let's oh. look at the Vulcans. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the Vulcans were able to rationalize and reason before any reflex. It's yeah. it. There is that buffer time there that Spock was able to access. You know, it's like, is this logical? Is this is this emotional or is this logical? Yeah. You know, let's let's bring it back down to reason. So it's 
we 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 can become Vulcans, Kevin. <laughs> we can do it. Mediated or technologically mediated Vulcan. I love it. <laughs> no, I. Love I, it. I don't know though, because in this form, like the higher tolerance for pain you have, the more hurt you will have but that's not that's not always the case that you know it doesn't body form if you put your hand on the stove and you didn't feel pain you would inflict physical damage on your flesh but that doesn't mean that you can't give your body an error that tells you to not put your hand on something right currently we have the error code of pain but then you pain right now it's it's it has to be so instantaneous i know that i you know i don't i don't need to jump off a cliff to understand that i'm gonna die at the bottom sure I, I, I can have an understanding that if something is hot and it's giving me a signal of heat that doesn't need to be felt with pain to actually cause me that that we we, play, we all play video games. Yeah, I know. We you're, all play video games, the and there's always the, that comes up. That's like, hey, idiot, you're burning your yes, flag. like the, why the big do you want red to... flash thing? I'm getting shot pain, from the right. Pain seems so much more. Like it's it the quickest like way to reaction, get you. Yes, exactly. It's like the quickest out. way. But if again, I have a message, it's I have not to read the, most... the message, and then I have to comprehend what the message said. And be like, oh yeah, ow! This stubbing is your toe. Do you really want to feel that amount of pain? I do when you because knew? you know what? I've never stubbed my toe since the last time when it really hurt. <laughs> since <laughs> the last time, exactly. yeah. you know it'll happen. Right. If you know you were dumb, a slight signature <laughs> of of your ineptitude, sure. of you not paying attention to where you're placing your pinky toe, that can be done with a memo. It doesn't need to be this full body, you know, convulsion almost looking like an epileptic on the ground you know th- that doesn't need to be that same response you know input sure. output sure. It, it doesn't need that we can we can mediate the input and output with technology nowadays Makes with sense. psychology with neurology with with philosophy that's what this all all is about he is a philosopher and he's laid out these objectives or these ways of mediating this this emotional well, and this um, is uh, with states with this mapping of the human genome and understanding what it is what it does who we are all of our makeup and now we're getting to the point of manipulation and we're we're having these ethical debates now of eugenics this is this seems like a clean version of eugenics but it's eugenics at its own you know it's natural we're taking control of the natural selection so what traits are going to be most beneficial to that couple a goat that has well, spider silk when it lactates <laughs> uh, there you go no, that is going to be very <laughs> beneficial no, but i'm that. thinking no, okay absolutely they did let's look at the top one percent they're going to want if if capitalistic sense if uh if you're gonna drive say the a top greed, one percent wants to breed superhuman soldiers that are going to slaughter the rest no of us i was folk. going towards the the, okay. the necessity for greed and for money well, sure. is is all of that going to stay part of the human genome it's it's well here's the thing evolution has already given us a one percent that has the highest percentages of of psychopathy and those types so lack of empathy so evolution has actually given us a a subsect of our species that are less empathetic and so and they're in a eugenic type of way in an evolutionary and this is what i'm saying we need to have this conversation this this debate is okay on a person-to-person level you can tweak only this only this but then who gets to dictate who gets to change what this is what i this is what brings up the debate computer that can let us know who gets to change right now it's it's what it's what david called genetic roulette it's a crapshoot and so are we really going to stay a species 
movies that we let the the Just dice random, of evolution right. give us a one percent that can siphon off the world economies that can run the military industrial complex that can do all of these type of things to manipulate yeah. our environment and knowing that neurologically they're they're not as empathetic that evolution has given them an advantage by not not having the ability to empathize with the other people that they're affecting that that is such a a real conversation that needs to be had is that we do have this genetic lottery that right. that has given us a an, an amalgam of different genetic uh, you know, machines well, walking around absolutely. or not machines, but, but feeling emotional beings, call them sentience. But we now have the opportunity. And I, I, again, stress the responsibility to modulate those things. Okay. So let's, let's take, uh, this is one of the things that you were saying is get your genome sequence. Now, if you want to be a responsible parent, 23 and me, you can do you, it for what? You get that, I don't think that's high. Right? No, 23 and me is a hundred bucks, but the actual getting your whole genome you know, isolated. He said it's it was like around different. five grand. Right. He said currently, and that's that's what it that's what he's saying. It's right now it's catered towards people, wealthy individuals who yeah, can afford yeah. five grand a piece. So that's ten grand for a couple to be able to get their genome sequence to make sure their offspring doesn't come out with, you know, something Down horribly wrong, or, devastating. Right. Depression. Depression. Depression yeah. is a is a genetic inherit okay. genetically inherited. And this is great that you're saying that because this is where do you take the responsibility now that we know that the environment of the womb or in the environment of the mother, if she is stressed, then the baby will actually have have more myelination or will be primed to come into the world with fight or flight type of of responses. It's more predisposed to anxiety and fear and those type of things because it's it's more, um, you know, prime for that type of world. If she are you saying stressed stressful, in the womb or if the, when if she the is mother, stressed, if the mother in general. If she is stressed, that's why you always want the mother to be the most relaxed and you want the, the birth process. You're constantly yeah, trying okay. to make the... So you're talking about when she's pregnant. Well, while she's I, pregnant, I wasn't yes, sure if you were saying yes. before, pre-genetic. Yes. I, I'm saying pre... So in fetal growth. Before, before any of I, I'm the, trying to bring it to this, how we're yeah. already modifying the genetic output of the baby when when the mother takes the responsibility to be to meditate to be sure. at peace because the world that that the baby is going to be primed to come into is, is going to be dictated on her mental state Absolutely. how she perceives Absolutely. the world and how she handles the world or her emotional states will imprint that emotional state on her baby and so right. so that's where we're doing and now is the argument to be made that oh you're just being late you know for a, a mother who is who is taking this this you know responsibility this is an epigenetic phenomenon you know she's already modifying the genome she's modifying how the genes are expressed in in the fetus but is there this same objection at that I don't think point? that's modifying the genome I it's think ep that's epigenetic absolutely it's it, it's it's modifying how the baby it's will come an into environmental the world. modification yes. of sorts. okay okay that makes sense it's I, nature I not nurture <laughs> <laughs> um well again let's get let's get down to responsibility of things that we can do now I, I I've got two children and one of the things that they ask you, I think it's around the, I could be wrong about this, around the four to five month mark, they ask you if you want to get a certain test done. And they will stick a needle in, in the belly and try and draw a blood sample from the, from the fetus. And then they can test. They can run it through a whole slew of tests to be able to find out 
if there's going to be any complications. But that's not saying that if we find complications, we can fix it. That's saying we're doing this early enough that you can perform an abortion if you need to. If exactly. there's something seriously wrong. Or, or, or it's whatever. to prepare. It's absolutely to prepare. Or to prepare yourself. To so prepare that you yourself to be able to understand what you might yeah, exactly. need. Right, yeah. Exactly. So, so what's but the, what's... eventually we get to a point where then you take that information and then you can be proactive instead of just saying, here's what you're going to get. Good luck. Mm-hmm. You're saying, here's what you're going to get. Unless you want to go this route or assuming you can afford when, it or when whatever. When you can get the choice of saying, change. no, I don't want my child to have Down syndrome. Right. Yeah. No, I don't want my child to have the speech impediment that he or may a, be predisposed to. a low to. threshold for pain or, or, or depression, like yeah, you depression. said, or whatever. Well, we know that you know it, it's hereditary you know, to be predisposed to depression and such, and that's passed down. Or and so that's something that I would not want to pass down to my child. Sure. And if I have the, the technology to not pass that down to my child, that becomes a responsibility. Right. But the, the moral question is, where is that line to where you're just tinkering for tinkering sake well, to create this idea of a super being of sorts? You know, you doesn't there's this, a line this there, gets to where how we define what it is to be human. Right. And if you're defining it as as the government would, as the gross national product, you know, what we can right. produce. Well, and that changes with technology because eventually you get to a point where you're inputting nanotech into the fetus so that it develops alongside with well, the fetus. Well, not necessarily nanotech, biological. but I think that eventually, like, like David was saying, in the next, you know, 20, 30 years, we're going to have it to where everybody and anybody can, before they even mate, before conception has taken place, to be able to choose what markers are going to go into what not after this is pre-planned parenthood is going to be an organization where you are pre-planning these are the the you know that hot topic designer babies yeah and this is happening in china it's happening it's basically what we do now just with more control yes and and here's where it gets down to all of this is an understanding so the more understanding once we understood that the mother's mental state as she is as she is um gestating this baby as she is you know the baby is in her womb her mental state does dictate the 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 mental state of the baby or the emotional state of that baby as well and so that understanding gives the responsibility for the mother to be relaxed to be you know to to do right. those proactive approaches and i feel that once once it's there that we can isolate you know the predispositions in our genes before I go to procreate, if I were to do that, it becomes now my responsibility because we have an understanding of the genome that allows me to see that, oh, there's there's this predisposition for, for depression. And I know I don't want to pass that on. And so that's the responsibility to modify my code, then to bring that to my partner. And then, you know, between our genetic codes interacting in the most optimal way that we define to be the most ideal human genetic program mm. that's what th- we then put into a cell or into an egg and then and then we gestate that and then we birth what is that in essence the you know so you're some saying of the first you, intelligently designed children and so you and your mate would be able to sit down and create this child and to be able to pick out certain markers that you want to pass down that are inherited in in the both of you yeah this raises the ethical dilemma of what ones can we tweak with what can we and can't we tweak with what what you know, because there are going to be people, you know, athletes. Let's look at athletes. They're going to want their child to have a stronger muscular growth. 
they're going to want, you know, things, what, whatever it may be, you know, where we start creating this, where, where does it stop? Where does it end? What traits can we, do we want to pass down? Or in what, what traits do we want to suppress? It really can go in a very ethical dilemma. When we what's the opposite? Have... Because right now it's lack of anything intelligently guiding our direction as we change our oh. genome externally with our with our culture, our society, our technology. All of these things are changing genetic expression, you know, all the way down to the code itself. Absolutely. And so it's this genetic lottery or this, you know, this throw of the di- dice that David was talking about. And so the, the flip side is not doing this. Then it's just up to the, the genetic dice being right. thrown. And I feel that that's where we need to always draw the perspective is yes. Where does this go? How much control do we have? How much should we manipulate it? But the offshoot of that, the complete, you know, the dichotomy of this is not doing it. Then we have fibromyalgia. We have Alzheimer's. We have, we have, you know, we depression, have, no. we have all of these things. We have the 1% that are more, sure. you know, psychopaths that are lack sure. empathy that lack, you know, all of these things that we would actually as a culture define as being human is our ability to connect we have and interact in and, other countries, and, rationalizing using chemical weapons on their own people. Absolutely. And then I another want proof. country that I want proof. lives nowhere. Evidence. Near. <laughs> Give me evidence. Just, and then yeah, I'll believe well, I'm you. just saying, and then you have another country. No, that's you're totally like, you, right. You have this environment that breeds this weird sort of, like you said, this mi- military industrial complex that is just like rabid with so, power. And it's almost too big to, to not control anymore. To not take control of genetic expressions that, that predispose us to, you know, these type of the state that we're in jihadism now. or, sure. you know, to, yeah, we got the here religion to genes? this state. Hold on. Are you talking for about every pessimist <laughs> yes, out there, for every gene. dystopian out there? I will completely succeed to your points that we are here now, which can be seen in, in the plethora in of different vice documentaries and such that that gen- evolution in the genetic lottery got us here. But at the same time, as we now have the understanding, we have the responsibility and, you know, to actually intelligently have the discussions that will that that we can come to a conclusion about what we want our next generation's genes to be expressed. Because I don't want psychopathy in our genes anymore because it's caused these bankers and these elites and these type of things to not think of the rest of the seven billion people and just think of. You know, the couple hundred or Themselves. whatnot, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it, and it, they're neurologically wired differently than us. We need to evolve past the point where we're like this new thing comes out and everyone's afraid of it and says, burn it at the stake instantly yeah. Yeah. because of that reaction. Like yeah. we need to have have the discussion. All right. Well, you should tell us, uh, tell the people where to follow us on Facebook for the Serious Wonder show and Twitter. <laughs> yes. It's SeriousWonder.com is where you can see all the articles we do post every day. Have that cool member section that if you come back every day, you get get points for that if you comment you get points submit articles you know all of those things go to points that you can turn into buy real world objects and such you can find us at twitter.com forward slash serious wonder facebook.com forward slash serious wonder the same and uh yeah leave us comments on on this for sure and we will have david pierce back on and he will address them. Kyle, stay Matt? optimistic, people. Okay. <laughs> stay yes, optimistic. Absolutely. And remember, it's, it is an opportunity, but also a responsibility. You know, we do. We are epigenetic beings that if we change our environment, change our thoughts, those type of things can change the gene expression within. 
And uh, I appreciate it, guys. This Thanks has for been listening awesome. to the Serious Wonder podcast. Absolutely. We'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks. Serious Wonder. Serious Wonder.